0: Well, it's good to be, like I said, back with you, Um, man, just singing this morning, just so encouraging. Um, It's hard being isolated. Um, It's hard being away from you all and um, not getting to participate in the mutual encouragement of one another as we come and as we gather. But we're excited to jump back into Matthew. And let me just remind you the, the purpose of Matthew. Uh, Matthew, we've said, is written to probably a Jewish audience, whether primarily probably Jewish believers, uh, but also, uh, secondarily, uh, Jewish unbelievers. But what Matthew is at pains to do is he's at pains to show that Jesus is King. He wants to show his readers that Jesus is king. He's really done a lot of that in chapters one through four, shown Jesus' identity, shown how he's fulfilled prophecy. But then it's not only that that he wants to show Jesus is king, he wants to give instruction about the kingdom. What is this kingdom? It's the same kingdom that was in the Old Testament, the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah that will encompass the whole world. But then not only that, Matthew also wants to uh, help his readers, help uh, Jewish Christians, and all Christians by extension, to live in light of that kingdom, to live in light of that kingdom. And that's really a lot of these five discourses that you see in the book of Matthew. We've been in the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, and what we've said is the the Sermon on the Mount is really about kingdom righteousness. For those who have repented, that's Jesus' call, that was John the Baptist's call, that was Jesus' call, repent, uh, repent. And what's the idea of repentance? To renounce allegiance to sin and self and to entrust oneself to Christ. To follow Christ as his disciple, trusting that through Christ you will be justified. And trusting that through Christ there is a transform transformation of life. We said that Jesus is the one who brings people out of exile. Remember, Israel is in exile. Why were they in exile? Because of their sin. Jesus came to deal with that sin to bring his people bring the Jews, bring those who would entrust themselves to Him out of exile, and because of that, there's a transformation of life. Jesus, uh, in dealing with sin, he he will die on the cross. Later in the book of Matthew, he will atone for sin, but not only that, in bringing about the new covenant, bringing about the new covenant, there was a heart change where he sends the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to change the individual uh, repenters' life so that they live righteously, so that they live righteously. What does that righteousness look like? Well, that's what Jesus is teaching about to his disciples, and secondarily to these crowds, those who have come, and maybe they've entrusted themselves to Christ, maybe they're kind of looking on, they're not sure, maybe they're there just for the miracles, but primarily Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and then secondarily to the crowds, this is what kingdom righteousness looks like. This is what righteousness, wrought by the Spirit of God in the heart, Is like. And so in the Beatitudes, it describes: here's the attitude, here's here's what the good life, here's what the happy life, the flourishing life looks like. Here's the disciples are gonna undergo affliction, they're gonna undergo persecution, but they are poor in spirit. They mourn over the sin in the world. They are meek, they will eventually inherit the earth. And talking about the 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 payoff, so to speak, is not here and now but in the future when Jesus comes and reigns. And so we describe that character of a disciple, their mindset in the Beatitudes. And then really the salt and light metaphors, talking about the disciples being not just individually, but collectively salt and light in the world, speaking of their mission, uh, speaking of their character uh, being different in the world, being a light in the world to back up their words to back up the call for people to repent and entrust themselves to Christ. And then we get into the main section of the Sermon on the Mount starting in 5:17 and really 5:17 through 20 Jesus describes, I came not to abolish the Old Testament, all of its content, the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill it. I came to actualize it. I came to bring it about. And that includes even the righteousness that is described in the Old Testament law. You see, what we've said is every manifestation of the law in the Old Testament is a manifestation and ultimately goes back to God's eternal moral character. And unlike the scribes and the Pharisees who have a merely external righteousness, they're doing the letter of the law, but not pursuing the heart, the disciples of Jesus, since the Spirit of God in the new covenant has come within them to change them to obey from the heart the law, they can look at even the Old Testament law, look for the heart of the commandment and obey from the heart. And that's what Jesus has been doing in the last uh, section we went through. Uh, He gives six examples of what does it look like to go to the Old Testament law and obey from the heart. And Jesus said the last time we were talking about Matthew, he talked about uh, not murdering from the heart. Is actually not just not murdering, it's actually not being angry, having a, 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 a desire to see the downfall of someone else. And In fact, it means reconciliation, speedy reconciliation with that fellow disciple or even with those who are outside the community of disciples if possible. What does it mean to not commit adultery from the heart? It means not merely to not do the act of adultery, but it means to to not look with lustful intent from the heart. That's what it means when God gives this command, don't commit adultery. He's not just talking about the external act, but what's behind that? What's the heart? What does obedience from the heart look like? And related, the idea of divorce. Yes, there's There's situations where divorce is possible and permissible, even in God's economy, even even that Jesus would allow for, but the point is to hold marriage high. To hold marriage high so that in the community of disciples, divorce and remarriage shouldn't exist. Which brings us to the next, now, set of three. The next set of three, where Jesus is illustrating what does it look like to obey the law from the heart. And today he's going to address oaths, Retaliation and loving your neighbor. And so the main idea this morning as we walk through these three examples is this. Obey God's law. Obey God's law. Christians who have been changed by the Spirit of God. Obey God's law. Obey God's law concerning oaths, retaliation, and loving neighbors from the heart. From the heart. And so let's look at first oaths from the heart. Oaths from the heart. Look at verse 33. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old. Now, you remember when you hear that, it's not like everyone had a Bible. In fact, Bibles were very, very, very expensive. And so they were just, you had scrolls and synagogues, right, that the Jewish Christians or the Jews in general uh, would go to. And so if you wanted to hear God's word, if you wanted to, know, to listen to God's word, but then also be taught it, you would go to the synagogue and you would be taught by a scribe or a Pharisee. And so what's going on in the backdrop here is he's talking to a group that has heard teaching about the Old Testament law, but mediated through the scribes and Pharisees who, on the whole, obey only the external uh, ramifications of the law, not going to the heart. So he's saying, you've heard this, and really the idea is you've heard this from the scribes and Pharisees. You've heard that it was said, referring to the scripture, to those of old. So back when the law was given to uh, the Israelites, and over generations, here's, here's, what, uh, here's what has been presented to you as what the law said and how to obey it. And what does he say? You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, that's not a direct quote from any particular Old Testament scripture, though it does summarize basically the Old Testament's teaching on oaths. The idea of swearing falsely would be, or swearing an oath at all, when you swear an oath, you're calling on something else. And the, the idea here is you're calling on God to hold you accountable for your words. So you're saying something, you're saying, I'm going to do something, or this is true, and may God hold me accountable for what I am saying. May the Lord hold me accountable to that. And so. To swear falsely, there, there's a couple of different ways it could happen, right? To swear falsely, you could, you could knowingly say something false and yet invoke with an oath to say that it's true, and you are swearing falsely. You are swearing falsely. Or you could, maybe, maybe your intention from the beginning, you, you swear in good conscience uh, by God, but then later you back out of it somehow. You're breaking your oath, right? You've sworn falsely. And really, this is important to understand what had happened, because the key issue here is invoking God's name. If you invoke God's name, God's going to hold you accountable. If you break your oath or you swear falsely, you're really blaspheming God. You're really blaspheming God. And so what would happen, what would happen in Jesus' day, there's actually extra biblical evidence for this, that because they didn't want to invoke God's name, they would invoke something else. Uh, But the way they would invoke something else, there was actually cases where, well, if you swear this way, it's binding. But if you swear this other way, it's not binding. And so there became this kind of case law around swearing oaths. And actually, Jesus is going to give a list of some of the things that people would swear by to get out from under their oath. And so you would say, well, I swore. You would still, it would sound like you were being serious about your word, right? You're invoking, you're swearing, you're invoking something else. But then you could say, come back later and say, well, I didn't actually swear by God's name, so I'm actually not bound to my word, right? You see how that works. You can manipulate the speech to sound like you're you're serious about something, but then to back out. And that's what Jesus is going to speak against. Listen to verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. If that's, if that's what oath-making oath has come to, ways of manipulating people to make it sound like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this thing, or this is true, but actually you, you're manipulating people and you're manipulating your word, then it would be better to not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, so this is something that people would try to swear by, I'm going to swear by heaven that this is true, and they would try to back out and say, well, I didn't actually swear by God. But Jesus says, no. Or heaven is the throne of God. See, even you tried to avoid, you tried to avoid, you tried to back out or make it sound like you were serious with your words, but you actually didn't have that heart. You tried to back out by swearing by heaven. Well, that's not going to get you out of it either because heaven is the throne of God. Isaiah 66, 1 speaks of heaven being God's throne and then the earth, which Jesus speaks of next as his footstool. So you can't try to swear by heaven and say, well, I, uh, didn't, I didn't swear by God. I can get out of it. Uh, or you can't try to swear by the earth. Well, maybe if I can't swear by heaven, I can swear by the earth. That's his footstool. It's still connected with God. God's still going to hold you accountable to your word. He's the one who's made the heavens. He resides in them as his throne. He's the one who's made the earth. He, it's his footstool. It's still connected with him. He's going to hold you accountable to your words, even though you're trying to get out of them. Don't swear by Jerusalem. Well, you could imagine a situation where someone's like, well, I I say that such and such is true, and um, uh, I swear that by Jerusalem. Now, that sounds really serious. But uh, what the person could do then is back out and say, well, I didn't swear by God. But Jesus says, no, 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 because if you swear by Jerusalem, literally towards Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Psalm 48, verse 2, describes how God considers Jerusalem his city. So if you're trying to get out from under it, and you just swear by Jerusalem, you're still held accountable by God because it's his city. He, it's the city of the great king. And then he gives another case, verse 36, a little bit different. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. This is the kind of oath that says, well, if I don't keep my word, uh, if I don't, what I'm saying is not true, then may my hair go white, which would mean essentially may your life be shortened. Uh, but what Jesus is saying, that doesn't work either. You have no control over your life. You can't, you can't uh, control whether you have black hair longer, right? whether you live longer, or whether you die sooner. You can't control that. Only God can control that. So no matter which way you look at it, you can't back out of your word. If this is what uh, oath-taking has come to, as ways of manipulating speech to make it sound like you're going to do something, but not actually, God's still going to hold you accountable to your word. And so if you're manipulative in your speech in this way, you shouldn't take an oath at all. Instead for the disciples, for those who have entrusted themselves to Christ, those who have repented, those who have God as their father. Look at verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Literally, let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. In other words, you say yes, you better come through on your yes. Or you say no, you better come through on your no. Anything more than this comes from, and I would translate it this way, the evil one. The evil one. I would say he's talking about Satan there. Who is Satan? Satan is the father of lies. You look back at even uh, the account of the temptation and the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. What's he doing? He's manipulating speech. He's making things that sound true, but are actually false to to get what he wants, essentially. That's what he's doing. And so if you go beyond a simple speech, a disciple's speech should be, yes, I said yes, I mean yes. A simple, uh, uh, your word means your word. If, If you go beyond that, then really you're showing the character of the devil, of the evil one. Because the evil one manipulates speech. The evil one lies. I don't think Jesus is necessarily... Actually, we see, we see examples later in uh, the, even the New Testament where you have Paul swearing an oath. So he's not saying uh, get rid of oaths per se. What's he speaking against? He's not speaking against oaths per se. He's speaking against a manipulative sort of speech that would try to get out from under its, uh, someone's own word. A sort of uh, sanctified dishonesty, right? That's what he's speaking against. That's what he's speaking against. A disciple's word should be as good as an oath, just like God's word is as good as an oath. God doesn't have to swear. God does swear to, uh, uh, in the Old Testament to affirm the truthfulness and his promises, but God doesn't need to do that because his word is unchangeable. His yes is yes, his no is no, and so should his children's words be can you say that you have a simple, honest, yes-no speech with others? Or do you try to manipulate others with your language? Do You say one thing and then do another. Are you a person of your word? Are you known as a disciple of Christ as being a person of your word? Or do you find that you, you know, you back out, uh, you, you shift things, you shuffle you try to blunt the implications of what you said in the past to back out on your word, whether orally or in writing. You see, if those who, those who have been changed, as those who have repented, those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, then you should have a yes, yes, no, no sort of speech. You should have words that are as good as an oath. That's what Jesus is speaking of. That's how to take oaths from the heart. That's what oath-taking means from the heart. What is God desiring? Honest speech at every level. Next, we see retaliation from the heart. Retaliation from the heart. Look at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, so again, this is the presentation of the scribes and Pharisees in the synagogue or somewhere else. Uh, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, what's he talking about? This is a quote. Actually, it's kind of a, a quoting a piece of uh, that's mentioned in three different Old Testament scriptures in the law in the first five books of the Old Testament. I want to take you to those places to understand all of the context of what Jesus is speaking to. So, go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to Exodus twenty. Exodus twenty-one. And look at verse 22. So, Exodus 21, right after the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are given in 20. And then we get a bunch of various laws that flesh out the, the, the implications of the Ten Commandments. And then we get this in Exodus 21 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's, woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Which, by the way, that implies that the what was in the womb was life, which is an important text for our um, for our understanding of. Abortion. Verse 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So, what's going on here? Uh, What we see is law, and we see the eye for eye, tooth for tooth language, but notice the context. The context is a legal setting where you've got a couple parties, and they're before the judges. And who's the eye for eye and the tooth for tooth language for? It's for the judges in determining this harm was done and we have a proportional justice for what was done. That's, that's the idea of the eye for eye and tooth for tooth language. We're talking about proportional justice. So this was done, therefore the judges determine this is the just response. All right. So that's the context for that. this particular scripture on the eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Let's see one more. There's another one in... Leviticus 24, 17 through 22, that's similar, but I want to take you to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 19, and we get that same language, but it's, it's a little bit different scenario. Deuteronomy 19, 16, 19, 16, listen to this. And listen for the differences. There's, listen, there's similarities, but there's differences. Deuteronomy 19:16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. What's the context? Again, it's a judicial context, but this case, you've got someone... uh, with a frivolous lawsuit, let's put it this way, right? That there's a false witness, someone who's trying to maneuver the situation to get something out of it and to deter from that, then the idea is that someone comes to law wrongfully and is trying to do wrong to someone else, then the wrong they were trying to do someone else comes back to them. Isn't that a good deterrent from frivolous lawsuits, right? So that's the idea So it's a little bit different than the previous case. The previous case, there was actual harm and we need proportional justice, What does proportional justice look like when there's a a wrongful lawsuit? Well, if there's a false witness, then it comes back on the one who accused, the exact amount, what he was trying to do to the other. That's the eye for eye and tooth for tooth sort of language. Now, go back to Matthew 5. Notice what is presented as the instruction. The instruction is simply eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, if you just present that to other people and say, all right, this is how God operates eye for eye and tooth for tooth. how could that be twisted or manipulated? Well, someone wronged me and uh, God operates on a tooth for tooth and an eye for eye sort of uh aspect so I'm going go ahead and uh, I'm gonna go ahead and fix it and this person did this wrong to me, so I'm going to go ahead and do that wrong back to them because that's how God operates and that's wrong it's wrong because not talking about taking justice into your own hands and retaliating on your own. Remember the situations we saw in the Old Testament, it was in a judicial setting. It was for the judges to decide the eye for eye and the tooth for tooth. But you could see how this would be manipulated and you could see that if you operated this way in society, that tit for tat, you did this to me, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back the exact same amount. But that's not right. It's incorrect. It, what is, uh, that, that is not what that Old Testament passage was spe- speaking about. So what does Jesus say instead? Verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist. And what does he mean by resist? Resist in an eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth sort of way. Resi- taking the law into your own hands and retaliating, seeking revenge for your own honor or whatever uh, has happened to you by this evil person. Now, notice Jesus says, you know, he says, don't resist the one who is evil. He acknowledges that evil was done to this person, but even in that case, what does he say? Don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. That's not your job. It's not your job to take justice into your own hands and retaliate. And he gives instruction. What does this look like then to not retaliate, even though you've been wronged? He acknowledges, Jesus acknowledges you've been wronged. Someone evil has done something wrong against you. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. A slap on the right cheek would be, if you think about it, it would be a backhanded slap onto the right cheek. It was more insulting than it was damaging, right? This is not the same sort of harm that Exodus was talking about. This is, this is insult. But when you're insulted, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to start to, to, I can fight back, right? And then it escalates, and Jesus says, no. Actually, if you were insulted, physically slapped in that culture, what you should do is turn the other cheek around. What is he saying? You should be, rather than perpetuate the retaliation what you should do is be willing to be taken advantage of rather than retaliate. Because it's not your job. Justice is not... You, you can't take justice into your own hands. Whose hand does justice fall into? God's. God's. That's the implicit background here. That the disciple, uh, the one who's been wronged, if they're, they're willing to even be defrauded, and we'll see more of this rather than retaliate well who's going to who's going to stand up for them god is god is god's the one who's ultimately going to mete out justice verse 40 and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic let him have your cloak as well i, I think this is he's, jesus is still presenting an issue where someone evil comes against the disciple so someone's coming up with a frivolous lawsuit. We know that can happen. Deuteronomy talked about it. So someone's coming against you with a frivolous lawsuit, and they want to take your, your, uh, your tunic, your shirt, your basic garment that covers your body, and they, they could be quite valuable. Then go ahead and be willing to be... Go ahead and go the extra mile. Be generous rather than retaliate. Give them your cloak. The cloak was the outer garment. You could sleep in it. Uh, it, it, was, it was a more valuable garment even than the tunic, the shirt. What's the point? Rather than retaliating, rather than for having an eye-for-eye, eye, a tit-for-tat sort of mentality, you're willing to be defrauded, and you're willing even to be generous, even to the one who is doing you wrong. Why? Why would you do that? Well, let's keep reading. Let's, let's see his more, more examples. Verse 41 If anyone forces you to go with you one mile, go with him two miles. This is the situation of a Roman soldier. Uh, they, could, they could requisition you for service, they could press you into service. So, whether uh, to carry their gear or whatever, they could, they could requisition you and your animal to go a mile. And Jesus is saying, All right, go with them the first mile, but then go an extra mile. Be generous even though that you, you know, this, this, be generous towards this one who's sort of taking advantage of the situation rather than retaliate. And then Jesus goes on, verse 42, Mm -hmm. give to the one who begs from you. Now this situation, right, you're thinking of someone who's desperate and this would happen in that culture. Those who begged actually in that culture were actually desperate. They didn't have anything else. And so, They they would come and they would beg and you would give to them. And Jesus is saying, give to them. Now, if you have a tit-for-tat mentality, right, if you want to just uh, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, you don't want to give to a beggar because there's nothing they can give back to you. But Jesus is saying, no, give, give, be generous. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Uh, Someone who's desperate, who's who's down on hard times and would come to you, often you wouldn't want to loan to them. Why? Because you can't receive back from it. But Jesus is saying, well, don't have a tit-for-tat mentality. Don't have an eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth mentality. Rather, be generous. Why? Because that's who God is. That's who God is. People slap God in the face each and every day. And does God mete out justice right then? He will. Now, he will mete out justice eventually. But does he do it right then? No. He's patient He's forbearing. He's generous. And the principle that you're going to see in each of these cases, really the principle in all the cases that Jesus is doing, is that if you want to go to the heart of the law, you don't go to the letter per se. You go to the heart, and you go to God's heart. And what is God's heart? God doesn't retaliate in a tooth-for-tooth uh, sort of way. He will mete out justice in the end, but he is patient, he is generous, he is forbearing. I don't think Jesus is saying, oh, if there's actually harm. Like, none of the cases that we're saying here, it's not like there's this, this harm and you can't defend yourself. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think, uh, what is he trying to do? He's trying to disarm this mindset of tit for tat. It's trying to disarm this mindset of tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Don't live with other people that way. Even if they've done wrong to you, be generous to them, be forbearing. It also doesn't mean that you don't seek justice in the appropriate way. It's right to take someone to court who has done wrong, who's done real criminal activity. They need to be held accountable to the law. But not because you're seeking personal vengeance. You're seeking what is good, both for that person and for society as a whole. It also doesn't, I don't think what Jesus is talking about is uh, just... You, when you know that you, when uh, the money you would give or loan or, or whatever is going to be misused and abused, I don't think he's necessarily saying you just keep on giving. I don't think that's what he's doing. Again, what's he trying to do? Disarm the mindset. The mindset that says, I have to stick up for me. I have to stick up for my honor. I have to right my own wrongs. No, you don't. No, you don't. God will right wrongs in the end. Is your default to take matters into your own hands when you're wronged or to be generous to those who have legitimately wronged you and to leave justice and vengeance to God? That's what Jesus is getting at. Do you have a tit-for-tat mentality in your relationships or do you desire to be kind and generous even to those who have wronged you? There's real evil being done. Jesus is saying this is an evildoer who's attacked you But what is your response? You can only control your response to the situation. What does it look like to pursue God's hearts? Not eye for eye, not tooth for tooth, but generous and forbearing, even willing to be defrauded for the good of the other, for the good of the other. Which brings us to our last section this morning, transitions us nicely into loving neighbors from the heart, loving neighbors from heart. The heart. Look at verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you shall love your neighbor, that's a quote from Leviticus 19.18. It's uh, one of the two great commandments in the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. But notice what's add it on here and hate your enemy. There's no command in the first five books of the Bible that says hate your enemy. So what is this? Well, I think what it is is again, it's the teaching from the 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 uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. The, you think about this, right? If you hear the language you shall love your neighbor, then you might be tempted to draw the implication That, oh, I only need to love my neighbor, and I can hate and should even hate my enemy. Right? Uh, Well, those who are close to me, those who are fellow Israelites, remember Jesus is speaking to a Jewish um, context, I only need to love them. I don't need to love Gentiles. I don't need to love uh, these, these, uh, these other people. I just need to love my neighbor. And Jesus says, no, that's wrong. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Essentially, what Jesus is doing is he's saying your neighbor is actually your enemy as well. The the idea of it's not just those who uh, you're on good terms with, but your neighbor is also could be your enemy. Your neighbor could also be your enemy. What does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? How could you even possibly think about loving your enemy? It seems like you wouldn't have like a good disposition towards them. Well, what is love biblically? Biblically, love is having such a regard for someone that you're willing to do what's best for them at great cost to yourself. So it's possible, even for an enemy, to, to, to recognize, yeah, I'm not on good terms with this person, this person's against me, And yet, what is best for them? What is best for them? What do they need? What would be good for them? And how can I seek it? And Jesus talks about, uh, it kind of illustrates one way of doing that. Pray for those who persecute you. Remember, even in the Beatitudes, Jesus acknowledged to his disciples, you're going to be afflicted, you're going to be persecuted disciples in this life. So what do you do? What do you do to those who are your enemies, those who are against you, those who are persecuting you? Love them, seek to do what's best for them, not just in attitude, but in action, and pray for them. Both verbs for loving and praying, they're, they're in this, uh, the, the way it's conveyed in the original is you're, you keep loving them and you keep praying for them. It's not just a one-time act. It's, that's your mentality. That's your disposition towards your enemies You want what's best for them, and then you even go before uh, the Father in heaven to pray on their behalf that that what is best for them would happen to them. That is what loving your neighbor. If you look at the heart of the command to love your neighbor, it means loving your enemies too. Why? Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God does this. God does this every day. He sends sunshine to make crops grow on the righteous and on the unrighteous, on the good and on the evil. He sends Rain to make crops grow. That's you know They're an agrarian society. So sunshine and rain in their proper times. That's really good. That's what you need to live. And that's how God cares for his creation. Both good and evil. Righteous and unrighteous. And so the point here is, remember like we said at the beginning, the whole idea is of a disciple, those who are following Christ, they're following God, they're pursuing righteousness from the heart, which means they're pursuing God's heart which means you act like God acts, which means you love your enemies. You emulate him as true sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. You love your enemies, and you pray for those who persecute you. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Remember, tax collectors, they were kind of like tax farmers, so they would have this amount they're supposed to collect, but then to make their living, they would add on extra tax. So they were they, they colluded with Rome, they were despised, they were seen as thieves. These are despised people, but what Jesus acknowledges is, is even among tax collectors, they love each other. Uh, they, they seek their each other's good. They have each other's backs. But If you are a disciple and you only love disciples, now you should love disciples, right? Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But if that's all you do, there's nothing special about that. There's nothing special about that because tax collectors do the same thing. You don't have any merit to that action. There's no no righteousness that God would like to see in your life if you just love those who love you. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles, foreigners, do the same? Remember, he's speaking to a Jewish context. So even Gentiles, even pagans, they they greet each other. They love each other. They have each other's backs. But the disciple emulates the father in loving even your enemies. And that's the principle. Verse 48. Verse 48. The verse 48 is really the principle not only for the love your enemies section, but for all six sections that Jesus has been talking about. What is the aim in following even the Old Testament law from the heart, not just the letter, but the heart, because the letter can change. We don't. We, what is the principle? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect it's emulation it's emulation of god's character this word for perfect it's in the old testament it was used of blameless this idea of a like a pure sacrifice a blameless sacrifice so what is he talking about he's talking about god has blameless moral character it's perfect actually perfectly blameless moral character in how he acts if you're a disciple if you have repented from your sin You've, uh, you've, you've, you've denied allegiance to yourself and to sin and have entrusted yourself to Christ and your allegiance is to Him. You're a son of the Father through Christ. Then you begin to take on your Father's character. And you pursue. The pursuit, the target is God's character. God's imperfect, blameless character. Character. Is that possible? Well, in a sense, no, right? We know we're going to stumble, right? That, you, that you're not going to perfectly show a perfect blameless character in every instance, and yet here's the reality of the new covenant that we keep coming back to, that in Christ, as you are united with Christ through faith, not only does Christ deal with the sin issue by atoning for sin, living the perfect life so that you can be counted righteous, but then because you're united with Christ, he sends his spirit into your life so that increasingly in measure, you take on more and more of the Father's blameless character. And what does that look like? Well, it's exactly what Jesus has been speaking about. And you're like, well, what if I fail? Well, We go back to Christ. We go back to what he has done. You repent and you entrust yourself to Christ that he is righteous in your place. But then increasingly you walk more and more and take on more and more the aspects of your father who is in heaven. So if we think about this this particular issue, loving your enemies... Who are the enemies in your life? Or maybe you wouldn't call them enemies, but the people who are against you or the people you're not on good terms with or the people you're just indifferent about. Who are those people and what would it look like to love them and do good to them and pray for them? To think about their best. What is their best? What is their best? And how could I, how could I tangibly pursue that for them and also pursue that for them in prayer? You can think about it this way, too. Uh, here's another application. You, we ha- you have to realize, and you've, you've probably seen it, and we talk a lot about this, but it really is true, and Jesus expected this for his disciples. Increasingly in our society, we're post-Christian society, and what we say is increasingly labeled as hate speech, as wrong. We're going to be persecuted and mocked and derided as Christians, and those who are, are going to be our enemies those who are persecuting us and what are we called to do as that happens we're not called to tit for tat we're called to to love our enemies to do good to them to those who hate us to those who speak against us what is their best what is their best and how can we pursue it this is how we must love and here's the reality in all of this we've said it but it, we've said it over and over but You can't do this. There's no one who could come to the Sermon on the Mount and think, oh, well, this is what I got to do to be acceptable to God. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. If if you believe coming to the Sermon on the Mount that this is what I have to do to be acceptable to God, what you're going to see is your own sinful heart more and more and more and more. But that's where the gospel comes in. You cannot pursue the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot pursue the first discourse. You cannot live this way apart from the gospel. The reality that Christ has died in your place, that he has taken on all of your gross sin that's in your heart, that God sees and he has died in your place for that, not only that, and live the perfect human life that you couldn't live so that you can be counted righteous before God and considered his adopted son and daughter. And then, not only, but he doesn't just leave you in, yeah, you're considered righteous, have a nice life. He changes you. He molds you. He makes you more and more like the Father through the Spirit that he sends into your life. So if you, you look at your life and you say, I, I don't live this way, and I'm not even close to living that way, and, well, in a sense, join the club, but what do you do with that? you come to Christ you entrust yourself to him you repent and you look for his work in your life through the holy spirit as uh, as part of the new covenant let's pray lord we want to live this way we as your people as your disciples we want to we want to be blameless as you father in heaven are blameless we want to be those kinds of people. Lord, thank you for teaching us and what that looks like. And it is is—it is high. The standard is high. But we thank you that you've given us the power through your spirit to increasingly grow in that character. Lord, we pray that we would be people that are honest in our speech, that our yes is yes, our no is no. For that honors you. That's who you are, Lord God. We pray that we would We would not retaliate, that we would not have a tit-for-tat retaliatory mindset in our relationships, in the church or outside of them, oh Lord God, but that we would be forbearing, that we would even be willing to take an advantage of and to be generous because that's who you are, Father. And I pray that you would help us to love our enemies. And as we increasingly face more and more enemies in our society, those who would persecute us, help us to love them, to pray for them, and to do good to them. Lord, help us to consider and see what would it be best for that person and to think of that person as better than ourselves, even our enemies, to do good to them. Lord, we can't do this apart from your Spirit. We ask for your strength. And we pray that if there are any here that don't know you, who have not repented and entrusted themselves to you, who don't have the Spirit inside them, I pray that you would bring them to repentance and joy in you and they would follow you, Lord Jesus. We thank you. We thank you for your rescue. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.